Hello, Greyhound. This is Trap One. Do you read me? Over. Welcome to Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. And I am Jason. Hi, Jason. Uh, so last weekend you were visiting the Li Who convention. How was that for you? That was a lot of fun. This was my fifth Li Who. It started in 2013, the same month as the 50th anniversary special day of the Doctor. And I was a regular there the first four years. Last year that I went was 2016, which was the same weekend, actually the weekend after Donald Trump won the presidential election. So it was a very funereal and depressed atmosphere, to nobody's surprise. Um, 2017 I missed, and then they didn't have one last year. So this year they've sort of restarted. They've sort of restarted the convention, and it was a smaller group. I think there were a thousand of us last time. This time it was down to two days instead of three, and it was only 500 visitors. But it had a really, really strong guest cast. You had the Seventh Doctor, the Eighth Doctor, Katie Manning, John Leeson, Daphne Ashbrook from the TV movie. You had Louise Jameson, and you had Fraser Hines, who's pretty much been at every Doctor Who on Long Island ever. And I think I said Katie Manning. So it was a terrific, terrific guest list. That sounds great. Yeah, I think uh, most UK conventions will be pleased with a uh, with a lineup that that big and uh, uh, that that many uh, high profile names. Um, and it, it gets good with Katie Manning, John Leeson, Fraser Hines, all these people. Now they've got new stuff to talk about because they're working on all the new Blu-ray extras. They're behind the sofas. Um, you've had uh, Fraser Hines recently on the the cookbook revisited that kind of thing. So uh, you're going to get some new stories, basically. You know, not these sort of uh, 40, 50-year-old anecdotes that you've maybe already heard a few times. That's right. And Fraser Hines is still doing a large volume of material for Big Finish. Yes. And Katie Katie Manning had just recorded a new scene in character as older Joe Grant for the Season 10 Blu-ray box set. Oh, yeah, for the uh, with um, uh, the guy that played um, her kind of on-screen love interest, didn't she? Yeah. So. Right, Stuart Bevan, I think, it, was yeah. the actor's name. Uh, Cliff Jones. And, of course, you have Louise Jameson and John Leeson have been working on the fourth Doctor Adventures for Big Finish, mm-hmm. if memory serves me right. So they all have a wealth of new material. Fantastic. Uh, so we've been reading the, the Target Storybook as well. I think you were reading it while you are away uh, on Long Island for the convention. I was hoping that I would find a copy there. But because it was a smaller con and the dealer's room was kind of minimal, I was not able to find a print copy. So I ended up getting the Kindle edition, and I started reading it in my hotel room on Long Island on Saturday night. It's uh, yeah, I've, I've got the uh, the print edition. It's um, it's a nice kind of chunky volume. Uh, I've got fifteen stories in here, um, covering the the full. Range of all the doctors' eras, if not if not all the doctors represented, all the, the eras are. And interestingly, the doctors are somewhat out of order in that you have a thirteenth doctor story to open the piece, and then it ends again with a thirteenth doctor story, and the other doctors are more or less sequential in the middle. Yeah, and th- those are the two stories as well that are written by um, the well, other than Terence Dix, the sort of uh, the authentic era. Uh, on-screen writers for, for the respective series. Right, Joy Wilkinson and Vinay Patel. Yeah. So, 
Joy Wilkinson opens the set with uh, Gate Crashes, which takes place immediately after her uh, TV episode, uh, which was called Witchfinders. Uh, and this one, the, the 13th Doctor and her friends arrive in a futuristic pizza parlor on an alien planet. Um, it's a, they find, immediately find a dead body of a, of a young alien girl there. Um, and it seems like it's going to be kind of a locked room mystery to begin with. There's no doors, there's no windows, this, this place is entirely sealed up. Um, but it's because this world has developed teleportation sort of earlier in its development than, than is, is typical, uh, also the doctor, the doctor thinks. So the, um, it's, it's changed their point of view quite a bit. So they just teleport everywhere. They have these sort of bracelets that will teleport them from work to home and back again. Um, and, and the shopping mall. So they live a very isolated existence, um, and w- which made me think it was about sort of technology isolating people, social media and that sort of thing, um, uh, you know, maybe making people a little bit more isolated and uh, less, less inclined to physically spend time with people. I would tend to agree, but my larger question about this story is, what was it doing in the Target storybook? Because I couldn't find any overt connection to any other Doctor Who story or any Target book in particular. And especially when the next several stories after this one all took place inside of existing TV stories or books. This story was standalone, and it was good, but there was nothing to distinguish it from any of the other short story volumes that have come out over the last few years. And it didn't seem to have that special something that would merit inclusion in a Target storybook, which to my mind at least speaks to a very specific kind of Doctor Who storytelling that this particular short story didn't follow. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I, I wondered if just having a new series writer was enough to uh, to, to get her in, involved in it and, and to you know to guarantee her inclusion in the in the collection. Um, I think uh, we were talking earlier before we started recording about the rumours of some more Target books being released next year. seems like this year we're just getting this Target storybook collection, but next year we might get some of the, the paperbacks like we did last year with the Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat uh, ones. And I have heard some rumours, but all they are are rumours that I got off of the Doctor Who Target books group on Facebook. Uh, these are hopefully true. The rumors that I'm hearing, and again, this is an unconfirmed internet rumor. I do not vouch for this. I am just hoping that it's true. And people looking ahead on Amazon.uk have said these books are now in the system. Uh, Target cut-down editions of the two Eric Sayward novelizations and The Pirate Planet, because we already had a cut-down version of City of Death two years ago. And a new book by Joy Wilkinson, which possibly is going to be a novelization of The Witchfinders. And possibly a novelization by Robert Sherman, who did Dalek from the Christopher Eccleston series, which I am hoping against hope is true, because I would love to read that book. Yeah, uh, that would be a really interesting one uh, to uh, for Rob Sherman to revisit um, after the, 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 sort of the Dalek stories that have come after that and how the time war has been fleshed out. Uh, you know, since their first story back with the with the new series, so yeah, that'd be a that'd be one I'd like to read as well. And you also have the embedded notion of a big finish audio becoming a new series TV episode becoming a target novelization. Yeah. 
That's kind of like the Doctor Who trifecta, <laughs> isn't it? it? Yeah, it was a Jubilee, wasn't it, with Rob Sherman's uh, Sixth Doctor story that uh, Dalek was loosely based on. Loosely, yeah. but yes. I suppose if Joy Wilkinson is adapting uh, The Witchfinders, it sort of makes sense, maybe it makes more sense retrospectively if she's got the, the story that's set immediately after it um, in this one, because uh, there's a couple of references to, to The Witchfinders there. Um, I felt like it was a little bit maybe of an answer to Kablam as well, because um, you've got quite a similar setup where an oppressive system is is keeping people um, isolated in terms of Kablam. You know, they had to work on the uh, in the big warehouse, which was on a different planet to where their families were. Uh, obviously not in um, particularly good working conditions or anything like that. And whereas Kablam, the the doctor, you know, can lay no blame on the system, even though it had killed people to uh, to, to make its point. Um, and the only real victory at the end was that they got a few more human workers in, to, you know, to somewhere that was pretty awful to work in the first place. Uh, in this story, she does actually bring the system down uh, and release these people from a from a pretty uh, horrid existence. It would have been nice if there was an overt connection of somebody overtly saying I am writing this short story to undo the blam yeah, but that yeah I suppose um, she doesn't want to be too rude to uh, to, to Pete McTeague uh, it's, uh, <laughs> he might be he might be the short he might be the next showrunner <laughs> yes because Pete McTeague is having a story mm. in season 12 and the other odd part about Gatecrashers for me is that you have a dystopian story where folks have to live by themselves and they only get around by teleporting and there's very little interaction and there's a sort of sinister mad scientist who is har harvesting the citizens. But then, at the same time as that, you have the 13th Doctor riding on a motorcycle spraying a can of string cheese to navigate her way which is almost a comical, lighthearted YA romp, which I thought was an odd juxtaposition, considering how grim the story was. So it was a strange story for me on many levels. Yeah, I think it, it's not something... It, you don't get a lot of anger from the 13th Doctor yet, do you, about these sort of situations? Thinking about a similar sort of thing with um, Christopher Eccleston's Doctor, um, with all the people on the... Uh, in his series finale, where with the, uh, the the space station that was creating all the reality TV shows, um, but and the people were getting teleported away and then either turned into Daleks or just um, or just being killed because I think they said only only one person in a thousand was uh, was suitable to become a Dalek. Um, and his anger in that, you know, he's saying it's a charnel house. Uh, you, you don't get the, the same reaction here from the Doctor. No, the 13th Doctor in this one was a little too nice, perhaps, at the end. Yeah. I enjoyed the story, though. Um, and it was nice to see Yaz uh, bring out some of her the, the, the uh, her background as a police officer as well uh, in investigation into a murder there. We actually had a 13th Doctor panel that I was on at LI Who, and there were five of us, four fans, and then John Peel, the prolific Doctor Who writer. And John Peel was the only one who unabashedly loved Series 11. The rest of us were all 
kind of critical, and the most common complaint is that Yaz was a great idea for a companion, but had very little to do in Series 11. Yeah, she's always been better served in the uh, in the books, the um, the three Thirteenth Doctor novels, um, and and this story so far as well, isn't she? That's true, and there was one callback to the past where you learn the Thirteenth Doctor is still carrying around cans of Nitro yes. Nine, <laughs> which was Ace's uh, favorite explosive device in the Seventh yeah. Doctor books. That was really nice, and given that we know that the 13th Doctor is going to meet Ace in Sophie Aldred's um, novel At Childhood's End, uh, which comes out in February, um, you wonder whether that's going to come into play there. Ooh, let's hope so. Yeah, so um, Joey Wilkinson not, not coming back for Series 12, unfortunately. I was a little bit disappointed with that, because uh, do you think The Witchfinders was, uh, uh, was one of my favourite stories from Series 11. And on the panel that I was on last week, The Witchfinders was one of the few stories that had universal praise from everybody on the panel. Although it was nice to watch the Series 12 trailer, which dropped the same morning as the panel. So we screened the trailer in the room. It kind of went through it shot by shot. So lots of folks are excited for the Cybermen to come back and for the Jadun to come back. Oh, and for the 13th Doctor wearing a yes. tuxedo. Yeah, that looked pretty cool. And I feel like it's become a bit of a tradition with the new series, hasn't it? You've got uh, David Tennant's Doctor wore a tuxedo in the Lazarus Experiment. I think the 11th Doctor in Let's Kill Hitler. Um, and I can't quite remember the um, Mummy on the Orient Express. Does Peter Capaldi wear one? Or some kind of formal wear, maybe not a tuxedo. I think he was because Clara was wearing a very elaborate yeah. gown in that one. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's like the orange spacesuit, isn't it? Where it's become a little bit of a tradition that each each new series doctor gets to uh, gets to don it at least once. So the second story uh, in the collection takes us back to the first Doctor's era with Journey Out of Terror by Simon Guerrier. And as I was reading this on Sunday morning at the convention. I said to myself, this is exactly what I was expecting in the Target storybook. Journey Out of Terror is a very significant title, obviously, because episode four of The Chase was called mm -hmm. Journey Into Terror. And The Chase, you know, one of those stories where every episode takes place on a different planet. Episodes one and two were Iridius. Episode three was the Empire State Building, featuring the least convincing Brooklyn accent in the history of ever. You uh, go down the uh, short way, it'll uh, take you uh, 20 <laughs> seconds. And I'm native to Brooklyn, and I live in Brooklyn, and I'm recording this podcast on my end in Brooklyn. None of us talk Have like that. Have you ever met Peter Purvis at the convention? I have, and he does not have a bad Brooklyn accent at all. Or a bad <laughs> Alabamian accent, I should say. Very, very well spoken. But episode four of The Chase took place... In what we now know was an abandoned amusement park mm -hmm. in Ghana. But at the end of the episode, the doctor declares with certainty that it took place in the dimension of imagination. And Vicky is left behind. And this takes place at the very beginning of episode five of The Chase, or maybe in between four and five. So the doctor and Ian and Barbara discover that Vicky is missing. And believing that they have just come from a telepathic realm... The Doctor activates the TARDIS 
telepathic circuits and tries to go back. And they wind up on a spaceship which is piloted by a young girl named Julia Jett. I'm sure any comparison to the Jetsons was entirely intentional. And this takes place in a sort of paleo future, sort of in the 1960s idea of what the future was going to be like, where everybody has their own rocket ship, the way that we have our own motor cars now. And this plucky young girl has taken off because a satellite has been corrupted and has put everybody to sleep on Earth. And she is going up to rescue everybody using her pet dog and her pet robot to fix the satellite. So the Doctor and Ian and Barbara realize that they really have landed back in the realm of imagination. And I don't know about you, Mark, but I got the impression this story was also meant to take place in the land of fiction, as later seen in Season 6, The Mind Robber. Yeah, that's exactly how I read it as well. Um, I think this is the, the Doctor's first experience of the land of fiction. I think, I might. it's a while since I've watched The Mind Robber, but I think there's a line in there where the master of the land of fiction says to the doctor, you've escaped from here once before. I might be misremembering that, and it might even be something within the same story that he's referring to. But I always took that to mean that the doctor had visited there before because he does recognize the place and know what it is, I think, doesn't he, quite early on. I don't remember that, but if I see Simon Gurrier at Gallifrey 1 in Los Angeles in February, that'll be the first thing that I ask him. Because I know he was there last year. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that would, um, I think, if, if that is true, that, that would make sense of that and, uh, and tie up a nice little sort of uh, continuity point or uh, an unseen story. Um, but yeah, I'll let you say it is that sort of, uh, I guess, kind of retro future idea, isn't it? What they, what the In the 1960s, what they thought the future would be like. Uh, because uh, the young girl says, I, I stole my mum's spaceship. Uh, it's quite nice that the family have, you know, like a couple of spaceships each and the uh, <laughs> the daughter would just steal it like she would the family car. Yes, every, every family has two spaceships and a robot dog. Yeah. <laughs> Something else I loved about Journey Out of Terror is that it's told in the first person alternating between Ian and Barbara. And that's another way that this story lives up to the target promise because the very first Doctor Who novelization ever written by David Whitaker and was later reprinted as the very first Target book, was Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks, which was told entirely from Ian's first-person narration. Mm -hmm. So what better way to do a first Doctor story in a Target storybook than by having it told by the companions in the first person, Ian and Barbara alternating? Yeah, that's a really nice touch, isn't it? Because it's not something you usually get in the, um, in the Target books. But it, is, it harks back nicely to, to that first one. I think the only Target books that were told in the first person were that one, and then later on, The Romans, which was told as a series of letters. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And diary extracts. And something else that I loved about Journey Out of Terror is that at the very beginning of The Chase, episode one, there's this weird sort of awkward domestic sequence on board the TARDIS where Vicky can't find a place for herself, and Ian is rude to her, and Barbara is rude to her. And this story sort of retcons that and puts it in context, which is a nice way of humanizing Ian and Barbara. I felt like uh, it had a little bit of a Stephen Moffat vibe as well, because um, the, uh, the idea of the storybook isn't there, which they, they find themselves in. 
which is the book that's in the chase, isn't it? Is it the I can't remember, is it the monster book or the uh, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's it's a little bit like the Time of Angels, isn't it? With the um, the book that River Song's written about the adventure that they're having. Right. Because um, that's right. At the beginning of the chase, Ian is reading that book about bug-eyed monsters, and that book becomes a plot device in this short story. Yeah, uh, it's uh, Monsters from Outer Space, is what it's called. That's the one. Yes. Yeah. So it was. Uh, it had a little bit of that idea in the. Um, the, the sort of the, the, the Stephen Moffat thing of uh, we're all stories in the end uh, was uh, it felt like it was in that vein as well. And this story was a good one. Yes, I really like the ending as well. Um, you know, the idea that this uh, this character exists as long as there's somebody reading about her and knowing about her. Uh, so it ends with her begging you not to turn the page at which point she'll cease to exist. But the next short story was by Terence Dick, so I had to turn the page. Sorry. Absolutely. Yeah, his his final Doctor Who work. Uh, his final work. Uh, quite nice in a way that it is a sequel to his first Doctor Who story, though, The War Games. There's uh, a nice circularity to it there. Um, and it was a little bit almost of a best of Terence Dix, a lot of his own creations were brought back here. The Sisterhood of Khan uh, makes another appearance. So, which I guess um, it shows that it probably, I mean, I guess, he, I guess he would keep an interest in the series, but uh, obviously the Sisterhood of Khan returned to prominence again in the Stephen Moffat era. That's right. And they were also featured in Night of the Doctor, the Eighth Doctor regeneration story. Yeah. But this was a surprisingly dark work by Terrence Sticks because basically it is set in the middle of episode 10 of the War Games. But if you recall, after Robert Holmes wrote The Two Doctors in 1985, where the second Doctor has white hair, but is once again traveling with Jamie, fandom sort of created this whole theory about season 6B. Yes. Where the second Doctor is allowed to travel again in between his regeneration at the end of the War Games and the beginning of Spearhead from Space. So Terence Dix, who has become the keeper of Robert Holmes' legacy in print, wrote a couple of full-length novels for BBC Books, which took place during Season 6B. Mm-hmm. Players was one, and World Game was another, if I recall that right. So it's the second Doctor, after the War Games, traveling around only doing missions for the Time Lords. And in this story, you think it is the Doctor going on his very first mission for the Time Lords right after Jamie and Zoe have been taken back to their own time. And it serves as a sequel to the war game set on Karn. And this was perhaps the funniest meta joke in the entire book. But the Doctor goes to an abandoned castle on Karn which is implied to be the same castle where Professor Solon set up shop in the breed of Morbius. And who does the Doctor meet in this castle but the Warlord, played by Philip Madoc, who is also the actor who played Professor Stalin, who was later living in the same castle in the brain of Morbius. I didn't even think of that, but that's brilliant, isn't it? It yeah. really is brilliant. <laughs> and that was Terrence Dix's final Doctor Who short story. What a way to go out. What a way to go out. Yeah. Yeah, I think the series six B, if I remember correctly, this 
it was the uh, the discontinuity guide, the book that um, was it Paul Cornell, Keith Topping, and Martin Day. Martin Day wrote. I, th- I as far as I can remember, I think that's where the season six beast theory sort of starts. And Terence Dix read the discontinuity guide, and he referenced it actually in the audio commentary to the Five Doctors. Right. So we know he's a fan of the book, and he took yeah. this idea. He he just he read with the idea. So he actually made a full season 6B. But the dark twist at the end of the short story is every time the Doctor does a mission for the Time Lords, he goes back to the trial, and he has his memory wiped. So every time he goes on a mission, he thinks it's the first one, because then he'll try harder. Yeah, because he thinks he's uh, if he completes this mission, he'll be granted his freedom again to uh, to just travel in the TARDIS. Yeah, it's, it was quite like sort of heaven sent. Um, that sort of idea, isn't it? Every... every that idea of repeating the same day over and over again. Right, right, right. Um, or I suppose like the, um, it's in Day of the Doctor, isn't it? The uh, the Black Archive, the security guard there thinks every day is his first day because he has his memory wiped each time. And what I was hoping to get in this book, which we didn't get, was a Fifth Doctor story where the Fifth Doctor takes Chameleon to the Black Archive because Chameleon's yes. photo is in the Black Archive, <laughs> so there has to be a story where Chameleon is taken there and his ro- has his robot memory wiped. Yeah. There's a real opportunity for a Chameleon short story there, which this book sadly did not pick up on. Well, there's also in the Black Archive, there's a picture of Sarah Kingdom with Mike Yates, isn't there? So there's a, a story to be set within the Dalek master plan. <laughs> there was a young woman cosplaying as Sarah Kingdom at L.I. Who, so... Cool. It's a pretty popular costume, even to this day, more than 50 years later. Ah, right. That's one I've never seen, but that's, uh, I guess that's um, a fairly straightforward one to put together as well, relatively. Yeah. yeah. Right. Black uh, black jumpsuit and a white sash. Mm-hmm. But something else about Save Yourself is that Terran Sticks includes the Statenheim remote control, which the second doctor later used in... The two doctors, where he whistles the TARDIS out of thin air, yeah. making the sixth doctor very, very jealous. Mm. So, yeah, this is almost a Robert Holmes short story as written by Terence Dix. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that I thought well, um, wasn't quite like a second doctor story was the sort of hand to hand combat. Not something, something you associate much more with the third doctor than the second doctor. After the Web of Fear was rediscovered, we found that scene in episode four where the Doctor kind of jumps on a Yeti trying to pull it off a unit soldier. Yeah, it's true. And then, of course, the second Doctor in Enemy, in Enemy of the World was seen to belly flop into the water. Mm. So Patrick Troughton had a penchant for physical comedy. Yeah, there's a, the scene from the invasion where the, uh, the Cybermen are firing at me and he does that... Um... The little jumps each time there's an explosion behind him as he runs along. Oh, yes. Uh, that was very tricky to set up, I'm sure. That was a good direction by Douglas Canfield. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great seeing that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's good to have the, uh, the Warlord back as well. Yes, and then, of course, in Time Worm Exodus, which was Terence's first full-length novel, that's also a sequel to the War Games. Spoiler for a 28-year-old yeah. book. <laughs> So that's a universe that Terence likes to revisit time and time again. It's uh, it's very rich, isn't it? The the war games that there's a there's a lot of areas from it that you can uh, that you can spin off. 
I watched it again recently. Love this. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Love the story. I think really early on when I'd only watched like uh, a bit of season twenty-five when it had just been broadcast, and I started started reading the the Target novels that I had in my school library, and I think the War Games must have been one that I read really early on, and I I had the idea for a while that there was the Time Lords and the Warlords and there were these different races that sort of specialised in different things. Uh, and it was only when I read more books that I realised that wasn't the case and the Warlords were never mentioned again. Uh, but I think that was my sort of eight, nine-year-old understanding after reading that book that uh, the Time Lords were just one race of uh, who were the Lords of something. Uh, that, you uh, sell that idea to BBC Books and yeah. write a... Uh... <laughs> A full-length yeah. novel based on that idea. I'd actually forgotten all about that till I read this, and uh, it got me thinking about the the warlord again. Because I think that the war chief gets much more uh, attention, doesn't he? Much more kind of analysis because there's a school of thought that he's the master, um, and if he isn't the master, he's he's obviously a clear um, sort of uh, forerunner to the master um, as a, a rival time lord that the Doctor already knows who's who's evil. You know, a bit of a blueprint. Well, there is a renegade time lord who shows up later in the Target storybook, so maybe that was him. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. That is an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, following that, we get the third Doctor story, The Clean Air Act by Matthew Sweet. Uh, And this one ties into the dinosaur invasion. Although it did take me a little while to, to cotton on to that. Um, I, I was reading it thinking this, this is a very similar theme, but it was only after I realized that the, because the, this is um, a little bit like you were saying about the way the novelization of the, uh, the Romans is made up of, of, of different letters and different sources. Here you have some excerpts from the book Last Chance for Man by Charles Grover. Uh, and it took me a little while to remember that Charles Grover is one of the brains behind Operation Golden Age in the dinosaur invasion. And when the doctor meets him for the first time in that story, he references having read the book Last Chance for Man and being a big fan. Now, I don't remember if that's only in the novelization or if that was on the TV episode too, but I vividly remember from the novelization the doctor makes a big deal out of that book. Yeah, I can't quite remember from the TV show either. Um, But this is... uh, So this is the... The inspiration for Charles Grover writing this book are the events here, which is quite a nice traditional unit story, really, isn't it? It's a quiet English village where something strange is going on. The unit family turn up. Um, And and what's happened is that all the air has has gone missing from this village temporarily uh, and then been returned, which the first time it happens, uh, I think, doesn't cause too much damage. or it doesn't cause any injuries or death, but causes a little bit of damage around the place. So unit come in and investigate. Uh, but then when they clear out again, it happens again, and there's a, there's a, a large loss of life at that point. Uh, so the, thematically, it's like the, the dinosaur invasion of Earth in terms of uh, you know characters who are so committed to restoring the, uh, the Earth to an unpolluted, state uh that they don't mind uh you know actually killing humans to achieve that and there's a really sad moment where the guy who's responsible for this says we'll just build a monument to them people who died 
which is really not how that's supposed to work. No, that's it. Um, so it feels sort of, although it's uh, it's quite seventies, um, obviously in its setting. When they're trying to evacuate the family, uh, Mike Yates is talking to a woman on the doorstep, and he says, "So, well, look, can I speak to your husband?" Which makes you think that's a very nineteen seventies attitude. The, the obviously the pollution stuff with the you know the extinction rebellion and everything going on at the moment makes it feel uh, kind of bang up to date as well. Right, and there's a really funny moment because one of the subplots in Invasion of the Dinosaurs is that Charles Grover had this community of hippies that he convinced to put on spaceships to travel to quote unquote New Earth. And they're living on these fake spaceships in the sort of parliament bunker. And they don't realize that they're not in outer space. And those characters, the Save Planet Earth Society, show up in this short story. And one of the characters in the short story is named Masterson, a yes. woman. And Yates and Ben are yeah. wondering whether or not that's the master in disguise. And they say, no, he's yeah. not that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really like uh, Matthew Sweet's writing. He's got a great turn of phrase. He gets the characters really well as well. And the last line of the short story is just wicked, wicked, wicked. So threaded throughout the story is excerpts from Last Chance for Man. And by the way, I'm looking at the episode transcript for Invasion of the Dinosaurs. The Doctor does mention that book specifically on TV. So it's not just a novelization. But after these three or four excerpts from Last Chance for Man, which recounts the story of this poor community from Charles Grover's point of view, the very last part of the short story is the third doctor writing a letter to Charles Grover, declining the opportunity to write the introduction to the book. I am also of the opinion that man has not yet had his last chance, not quite. When that moment comes, the choice will be clear. It will be a choice between a new way of life or going the way of yes. the dinosaurs. <laughs> Yours faithfully, Dr. John Smith. So that is implied to be the reason where Charles Grover gets the idea to send the dinosaurs yeah. to clear out London. Because the doctor <laughs> gave him the idea. That's awesome. That is just wicked, yeah. wicked, wicked. Well done, Matthew Sweet. Yeah, it was uh, It was a great great way to end it, wasn't it? Um, and, and again, I suppose like yes. the, the first Doctor story, it, it's the idea of what the future will be like. Um, I mean, obviously, we we uh, we don't want to get into unit dating territory, but um, the, the the book opens by saying, by the middle of the nineteen nineties, British super British supermarkets will no longer be stocked with fruit and and, and so on because uh, uh, there will all be kind of these famines all over the world because of uh, pollution and overpopulation and things, um, which you know, we're still talking about now, but again, we're talking about in the future again. Uh, so it's 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 not. I suppose what I'm trying to say is it, it's not written with the benefit of hindsight that we have. It's written as if it was in the 1970s with the concerns that they had then. So it gives it a, an authenticity, like a a target book written from that time. Yes, and of course things are probably even worse now in the 2010s than they were in the 1970s. So maybe Operation Golden Age wasn't yeah. such a bad idea after and all. And thinking about it now, actually just reading that little bit, the idea of British supermarkets no longer being stocked um, is uh, is pertinent because this is the fear that, uh, that, that the UK will leave the EU without a deal uh, and in the short term there'll be food shortages um, basically because we import about 50% of our food. So, uh, you know, there could be, uh, could be some, 
some short-term problems there. So I, I guess it is the other thing that makes it feel quite pertinent, along with the um, the Extinction Rebellion uh, uh, type of stuff that's in the news a lot. Well, good luck with your election coming up next month. Yeah, I think we're going to need it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> good, good luck with yours next year as well. Oh, <laughs> uh, don't remind me. So to change the subject, let's talk about the next story, which is punting by Susie Day. So before we talk about Susie Day getting to write the fourth Doctor story in the Target storybook, let's talk about who's not in the Target storybook. And that is the man who would have been the obvious choice to write the fourth Doctor slash Romana slash season 17 story, Gareth Roberts. And Mark, why is Gareth Roberts not in this book? Well, it seems, well, this is by Gareth Roberts' own account, um, which uh, I think he basically sort of wrote a, it was a blog post or it was uh, maybe for a, a magazine or some kind of online outlet explaining the situation that because of transphobic remarks that he made on Twitter, uh, there was a backlash, I think, wasn't there, that um, firstly from from Doctor Who fans, and then I believe from other writers in the collection uh, that he shouldn't be included. And obviously there's a slippery slope there because you want authors to be able to have their own political beliefs and views because not every Doctor Who writer is the same. If you go back to the Hartnell era, you have some writers who clearly had a right-wing agenda, which is not really in vogue today, but on the other hand, if you have an author who's going out of his way to denigrate a large subset of fandom, I don't think that author should be welcome in a book and get paid by that same section of fandom. Just being at LIU, just going to any convention, you have a large subset of transgender or trans-identifying fans. And this is a large part of Doctor Who's base. Not only that, you have the Target storybook where the main character is transgender him slash herself. So Gareth Roberts should not be collecting money to take part in this book, not if he's specifically denying the existence of fandom and denying the existence of Doctor Who herself. Yes, uh, completely agree. Um, he, he's choosing to publicly say things which, uh, which you know, are going to upset and exclude, like you say, a, a portion of fandom. Um and I mean, I think I think even before this, he's since he stopped writing. This is from my perspective, anyway. I haven't followed him on Twitter for a long time, but since he stopped writing for the TV series, seems to have just become more and more unpleasant uh, to and about people. Um, I know before the, um, the the transphobic stuff, there was just stuff about you know. I mean, I think Doctor Who is something that that brings out a cr- creativity in fans which, uh, you know, you would see him just kind of mocking or, you know, denigrating. Um, one of the ones that springs to mind, somebody had started a, a blog, you know, as as a lot of people are inclined to do, you know, starting from Doctor Who from the beginning, recording their uh, reactions to it and, and, you know, sort of blogging their way through the series. Um, which I have done myself. Yeah, and, and, and loads of people have done, um, and he sort of, um, I can't quite remember how the tweet was phrased, but it was something like, oh, great, another blog about watching Doctor Who from the beginning uh, with a picture of kind of basically somebody taking like a heroin overdose or something like that. And you think, well, one, you don't have to read it. <laughs> like, t- 
two, this is this is probably some young fan who is you know trying to express their love for Doctor Who, share it with people. Why is somebody who you know would have been looked up to by fans uh, and you know, he's going to be followed by a lot of young Doctor Who fans, basically, be, be, because of who he is, having written for the series. Uh, and the Sarah Jane Adventures, which had a specific YA. Yeah, guilt. I just if you've got awful views about people and and, uh, and 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 people who are different to you, why would you publicly share them? Um, it, it can only be to upset people, I think. Right, it's 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 really gatekeeping, is what yeah. it is, and. I have, been, I have been reading Gareth Roberts' books for 25 years, and I still follow him on Twitter. And I think the world of his writing ability and some of his books from the 1990s are among the best Doctor Who books ever written. Uh, the English Way of Death, The Well-Mannered War. I was a big fan of The Highest Science. So it's upsetting, number one, when he comes out with beliefs that I personally find repugnant. And number two, when he wants to be rewarded monetarily for these beliefs, which specifically are designed to inflame the very fans that are his customers. So I am of his right to have self-expression, but as we say here in the United States, the First Amendment to the Constitution gives you freedom of expression. It does not give you freedom from consequences. So the consequence for him is not being a part of this collection, and that opens the door for Susie Day, who just barges right through it and blows it wide open. So Punting is a story that takes place in the middle of two Doctor Who stories simultaneously. It takes place during the Punting sequence in Shada, which was obviously recycled into the Five Doctors because Shada was never aired and they needed a fourth Doctor clip when Tom Baker wouldn't take part. So for most of Punting, the fourth Doctor and Romana are trapped in the time vortex, as they are in the Five Doctors itself but they are conscious of what's going on and they're trying to find a way out. So they revisit many, many scenes from the five doctors while on their punt trying to escape. And it is Susie Day doing her own sort of comedic audio commentary of the five doctors, talking about what a bad day Barusa is having and explaining why Barusa pins the blame on the Castellan and making a joke about why Barusa has action figures set up yeah. on the game of Rathalon. <laughs> well, technically, he doesn't really need to. Yeah, it's very reverent, isn't it? Um, because I think the line is something yeah, like yeah. He, he'd made little figures and he'd even made little clothes for them. <laughs> I mean, you have to have, in any short story collection, you have to have a wide range of stories. Not every story can be serious. Not every story can be horrific. You need to have a parody or a satire somewhere in there. And this is the satire, and it's really, really yeah. wicked. Very, very good. Um, it's the, yeah, because the, the fourth Doctor being the most uh, irreverent Doctor as well, and the one who sort of breaks the fourth wall, uh, you know, quite often. Uh, so to be having him commenting on the events uh, is is brilliant because he sort of, um, he's there through some of the, the key scenes in the five Doctors, but, but cannot be seen or interact with um Cannot be seen by or interact with any any of the other characters in the scene. So he's uh, yeah he's commenting on the Time Lords recruiting the Master and uh, the uh, the what the other Doctors are up to. No, I love 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 the Five Doctors. It was one of my first stories. I just read the novelization last week. I don't want anybody making fun of the Five Doctors, but 
if you're going to have to do that, Susie Day was the right person. And I am glad that she had a chance to be in this collection, even if Gareth Roberts had to excommunicate himself from Phantom for her to have a chance. It's very good she had the chance. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we don't know for certain that he would have uh, provided a fourth Doctor story. Because on screen, he's written for the 10th and 11th, 10th, 11th and 12th Doctors. But his fourth Doctor season 17 stories from The Missing Adventures were very, very big deals back in the 90s. And of course, he was the person who got the right to novelize Shada in the first place. So that's sort of his era, quote-unquote. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about this sort of the absence of, which we'll talk about a little bit, the 10th and 11th Doctors, that maybe those are replacement stories. Uh, but yeah, I guess, we, I guess we may never know that. So when the cover for the Target storybook was released, you had illustrations of all the Doctors, and then you had an illustration of Adric leading to a very funny thread on the Doctor Who Target Facebook group about this story featuring yes. the war engine. <laughs> so why don't you tell us about the Matthew Waterhouse contribution to the Doctor Who literary canon? So this is The Dark River. Uh, this is set during the visitation. So when uh, Adric and Nyssa try to move the TARDIS, uh, I think to, to the house, don't they, if I remember the story uh i only recently watched that as well with the when the season 19 blu-ray came out uh and i just read the novelization earlier this year so it's still yeah, fresh so in my the, mind nissa spends some time in the tardis building the machine that's going to vibrate the android to death uh and and not long after that they move the tardis to the building i think the doctor and, and tegan and uh mace are locked in there aren't they uh, and that's how they escape. But it turns out they didn't travel directly from, from where they were. I think they were in the woods, weren't they, to the house. Uh, they ended up in your neck of the woods in the USA. Uh, let's be perfectly clear. I don't live in the USA. Okay. I live in New York. <laughs> I don't live in New York. I live in Brooklyn. This is a story set in the antebellum South in the year 1847. And it seems to be... Adric does Huckleberry Finn. And there are runaway slaves, and there are angry Confederate rebels chasing down the slaves. This is not the way we do things in Brooklyn. This is not okay. my United States. <laughs> this is the shameful pre-war era, which we don't talk about. Uh, Adric, I think Matthew Waterhouse lived in New York for a while um, when he was living in the States. But this is... Uh, not in my United States. In fact, 1847 is before all my grandparents immigrated here. So we were being oppressed in Eastern Europe in 1847. Fair enough. Yeah. I'll get okay. off my soapbox now. You can have your <laughs> podcast back. Well, yeah. yeah. So um, having arrived in, uh, in, the, in the Deep South, they, they meet an escaped slave uh who the so listen and adric have the the sort of um the idea of slavery has to be explained to them uh, as does the idea of race although they don't have any idea about race uh it was that sort of like white savior thing wasn't it that uh that that they undertake to rescue um the character that they meet well here was my take on this the character that they meet is an escaped slave named James, 
who was rafting down the Mississippi River. Huckleberry Finn, I don't know how big Mark Twain is in the United Kingdom, but Huckleberry Finn is one of the signature works in the U.S. literary canon. Huckleberry Finn is the great American novel, and it's about an escaped slave named Jim rafting down the Mississippi right. River. Right. I mean, it's, it's very well known here, but I haven't, I haven't read it, uh, so I didn't, I didn't pick up on that link at all. So I thought that Matthew Waterhouse was doing Adric in the middle of Huck Finn. That was my right. thought. I could be wrong. Uh, so it seemed at first like it was going to be a, a, a pure historical story where it would be um, uh, about the two characters kind of getting in. Because they're there for a few days, aren't they? It's not just sort of a quick uh, a quick stopover. Right. They journey through multiple states. They spend several nights on the raft. Um, in the meantime, the they see a, uh, a paddle boat, which has the TARDIS aboard, it having been uh, picked up from where they left it in the woods. Uh, and sort of overtakes them, but then the paddle boat sinks, um, and some zombie-like people come and take it out of the river um, and, and and carry it away. And in the course of trying to retrieve it, James, Adric, and Nissa um, are also taken prisoner and and brought along to the uh, the guy that uh, is controlling these people and wants the TARDIS forgotten his name it's doc ashbury doc ashbury so i don't know if that has any uh, any link to huckleberry finn or anything like that no as far of, uh, as i know huckleberry finn did not have any time no. <laughs> uh but i didn't know if there was a, a similar sort of character or a character name or anything like that so this is a, a, a time lord who is stranded on earth because he's got an even older tardis than the doctor at type 29 which has uh, broken down uh, and left him stranded here. He's uh, he's done a Drax and uh, kind of gone native with the accent. Yes. He's been waiting for another TARDIS to come by. He's he's one of the few things that still works on his TARDIS is the uh, the sensors which uh, have picked up the arrival of another TARDIS. So the local people he's implanted with chips to control them. He sent them to go and pick the TARDIS up. And bring it to them, which is basically also slavery, isn't it? Yes. But I and he's supposed to be sort of a renegade, evil time lord who Adric happens to help so that the TARDIS doesn't get stolen. Yeah. But we're never told exactly who he's supposed to be. We don't know if he's a character that Adric or Matthew Waterhouse created for the short story, or if he's meant to be somebody else that we've met before. Yeah, I. I didn't pick up on him being anything else, uh, anybody else that we already knew. And it felt as much like this was setting up future stories than anything else. This is, um, we know it's not the master, or at least he, he proclaims not to be the master. Um, and it doesn't seem like he is because uh, the, the master wouldn't have done things the same way that this character does. But, yeah, I felt it odd that Adric and Nissa didn't pick up on the fact that he was basically using people as slaves by controlling them, turning them into zombies, getting them to do his bidding, uh, which they then had no memory of. Right. There is that moment where he pulls a black metal tube out of his coat, and you think it's going to be the tissue compression eliminator, but it really is just a, a gun. Yeah, and he pulls a gun on them. Um 
And even despite all this, they they help him. He manages to escape from Earth. James decides to travel with him, despite the fact that he is essentially a slaver. A yeah, and uh, he says to uh, to Adric and Nissa, "Well, you know, please don't tell the Doctor that you've met me." I don't know why uh, right. they owe him any favors whatsoever, <laughs> but they obviously don't go back and tell the Doctor about him as well. Um, so yeah, I felt like there's, there's a lot of sort of unresolved stuff there. And what did you think of Matthew Waterhouse's writing style, though? I didn't think it was too bad. I think it, it was easier to read than. And if you've read Blue Box Boy, his um, it's an autobiography, but it's written in the third person. Right, I've heard the autobi. I've heard the audiobook version. I have not read the actual print book. Yeah, I think it, it is odd being in the third person like that. Um, but no, I thought it was a. I thought it was a well-written enough story. Just there was some some unexplained bits and pieces. It, it felt, there were some nice parts that I liked, mm. though. The three things that I liked. Number one, there's the quote from uh, Planet of the Apes. Adric describes Earth as a madhouse. Yes, yeah. And then you have the line, Adric was dreaming of numbers, which is a very Adric thing to do. And also, this is as much Nissa's story as it is Adric's. I thought Adric did pretty well. Sorry, I keep saying Adric. I think Matthew Waterhouse is very well writing for Nissa and showing Adric's sympathetic side and his bad side. So I happened to like his writing. I thought it was a pretty worthwhile addition to the collection, even if, as you say, some of the narrative choices were downright bizarre. Yeah. I think if you're writing a story that touches on slavery and, and one, of the, one of the characters is, uh, is, in, is, is guilty of that, it would, Adric and Nissa should have sort of picked up on that. Um, but yeah, I, I, to me, it just felt like it, it was setting up more stories for this new Time Lord character uh, and potentially James as well. Well, maybe Matthew Waterhouse will have a line of novels coming out soon. Yeah, maybe that maybe that's what he's planning. Yeah, um, because the the I mean the Fifth Doctor just isn't in the story at all, is he? He just doesn't appear. But James is wearing the Fifth Doctor's outfit, and he spends most of the story dressing as Peter Davison. That's as close as we get. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, he introduces the idea that the TARDIS has a a replicator like the the Starship Enterprise does that just, uh, just creates any number of clothes for them. Uh, which makes sense because Adric only brought one pair of pyjamas, didn't he? And they, they get into all sorts of scrapes. And, uh... That's right. <laughs> well, I guess uh, the so... only way that Peter Davison was going to get himself in the collection was to write his own short story, which he did not. No. But, but Colin Baker did. Yeah. That's right, Colin Baker. <laughs> so interstitial insecurity... This is a story that is set in between parts eight and nine of Trial of a Time Lord. It's directly after Mind Warp ends and after the Doctor learns that Perry has been killed. And it shows the Doctor being brought into the Matrix by the James Bree character, the Keeper of the Matrix. And he's given the opportunity to research his defense. And he ends up uncovering the story that is eventually going to become terror of the vervoids part 9 through 12 so this is colin baker writing for himself and he's in the matrix and he's communicating with a construct of the matrix called anosia and she is showing him possible stories that he can use to defend himself and because it is colin baker writing for himself he's able to bring in the parts of doctor who that he likes 
So he actually references two of his big Finnish companions because he's watching all these future episodes. And the implication is he's watching the future big Finnish audios. So he mentions Charlie Pollard. And there's a tangential reference to, I believe, Dr. Evelyn Smythe, the uh, old lady companion. And the Valyard shows up at the end of the story. And it turns out the Valyard has been manipulating the Matrix so the Doctor can present this doctored version of Terror of the Vervoids, which implicates him in the genocide of the Vervoids. But we learn from this story that that is not how Terror of the Vervoids was supposed to end. It was supposed to end with the Doctor creating a genetically modified, less aggressive version of the Vervoids who were not destroyed. And we learn that the version that is shown during the trial has been doctored by the Valiard to implicate the Doctor in this phony act of genocide. So the story that we see on television is not what actually happened. And it's also a chance for Colin Baker to write probably the longest run-on sentence in the history of fiction. And since we don't have a guest recording for this episode of the podcast, I'm going to give for all of you, I'm going to read this sentence. And I'm going to try and do it in one breath. (laughs) Taking a deep breath. Quote, You cannot surely spend all your time here, alone and inactive, waiting for the odd occasion when a Time Lord is reluctantly granted access to these records, in order to try to frustrate the best attempts of his fellow Gallifreyans to terminate his ability to regenerate. (sighs) Alright, was there an editor to this collection, or did Tom Baker just submit this thing directly to the printer? How did nobody catch that sentence? Yeah, that is quite long, isn't it? But it shows that Colin Baker actually speaks the way the Sixth Doctor speaks, with big words and in run-on sentences. So in that sense, it fits. But I was like, when is the sentence going to end? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting that we we get this other take on Terror of the Vervoids when the Trial of a Time Lord Blu-ray box set's just been released, which has a version of Terror of the Vervoids on there, which you can watch uh, with a trial sequence is excised and I think there's the sort of like the scene where the doctor has destroyed the communications room has been taken out so it's presented as if almost as if it was a season 24 story had Colin Baker not been removed from the role by that point or the season 23b that we get in big finish where the sixth doctor has his own adventures with Mel yes yeah so, so something like that so it's um it's interesting that now we've got another spin on it as well. It's going to be like Shada, isn't it, where there's uh, there's multiple versions of this this same story. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a nice sort of uh, let you say the um, the little addition there that the Doctor created a, a you know a less homicidal version of the Vervoids. Um, and what we haven't talked about is the little illustra- illustrations in this because that's what we see. Uh, the, the illustration at the beginning of this one is the Doctor watching himself in Terror of the Vervoids planting the Vervoids which are, which are more peaceful. Um, That's right. But it's quite nice because I, I love the Target books that have illustrations in them. Um, and that goes back to the very beginning. Well, yeah, all the Alan Willow illustrations. Yeah. In the first 10 or 15 Target books. 
Um, and these, are, I'm not sure who did these ones actually. Uh, if I if I read that at the start, but they're um, it actually they're is nice. mentioned in the copyright page, which in the Kindle edition is the very last page of the book. Uh, yeah, the interior illustrations, according to the copyright page, were done by Mike Collins. He gets credit on the copyright page. Oh yeah, he's uh, he does a lot of the um, the Doctor Who comics for Titan, I think, doesn't he? Um, or, or the or the Doctor Who magazine comic strips, maybe, or maybe both actually. I definitely recognize his name from from Doctor Who comic strip work. Uh, right, I've met a couple of the Titans writers recently because we had Comic Con here in New York uh, about six weeks ago. I don't know Mike Collins per se, but there's so many Titan comics I haven't been able to read every one. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, I mean, at their peak, there was um, like 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th Doctor ranges running, uh, as well as they did short runs for the 3rd Doctor and the 7th Doctor and the, the 4th Doctor and stuff, yeah. Uh, I think they've, right. they've scaled them back and just, just running the 13th Doctor for the time being, I think. Right. There was Nick Abadzis, who used to live right around the corner from me in my part of Brooklyn. He did the 10th Doctor comic for several years. Yeah. And now you have Jody Hauser, who was at Comic-Con doing a panel. Very, very interesting. Um, and she's been doing the ongoing 13th Doctor comics, which I've been reading. Mm. And that's nice because for the 13th Doctor comics, it's a female illustrator, female writer, female colorist for the female Doctor. It's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's not written by Chibnall, so the writing so, is actually good. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Rachel Stott as well does some of the art for that. Follow her on Twitter. She's really good. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose the other thing about this is because I know um, – I mean, it's a kind of well-worn thing about the trial of a time lord, um, and it's something again that's uh, that comes up on the the Blu-ray behind-the-scenes features. Is uh, during Mind Warp, I think Colin Baker said, "Well, how do I play this? You know, have I been? Has my mind been warped so I don't know what I'm doing and I'm really evil, or am I just trying to trick the mentors into thinking I'm on their side?" Um, and I think. Neither Eric Sayward nor Philip Martin could answer, and they each said, well, ask the other one. <laughs> so uh, so Colin Baker basically had to make his own mind up about how to play it uh, kind of on the hoof. Uh, so this, given that you know the decision was left to him, it's, it's nice that he gets some input um, you know, into setting down what, what he thought was happening as well. And all kidding aside about the run on sentence, it's great to have an actual doctor writing for the collection mm. and giving his own take on the story. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, a story that I suppose for Colin Baker was it was a, um, a huge part of his tenure. Uh, you know, it was, it was a whole season when he when he only really had the two seasons, so it was uh, right. It was literally half his time on the show. Yeah, so it's uh, it's always something that would be very vivid in his memory, I suppose. And he's he's spent a lot a lot of time talking about on DVD commentaries and and behind the scenes features. Yeah. Uh, and it so that, en- guess, ends a little bit like the second Doctor story with the Doctor not being able to remember what, what's occurred within the Matrix. So he doesn't remember the the character that's trapped in there uh, and doesn't remember what the original version of Terror of the Vervoids should have looked like. And the story sort of ends with the Valiar triumphant. And it won't be until we get to part 14 if the Doctor actually wins the day. Yeah. So it sort of ends on a cliffhanger. Which was resolved thirty years earlier. Yeah, absolutely. But nice timing with the with the Blu-ray being the most recent release as well, I suppose. Right. Uh, so the seventh Doctor is represented in the Slither of Shoreditch by Mike Tucker. By Mike Tucker, uh, who has written several Seventh Doctor novels for the um, BBC Books lines. 
he had a whole he had Mike he had he had uh, Robert Perry had a whole line going of season twenty seven novels with the Seventh Doctor at Ace. But this story takes place in the middle of part two of Remembrance of the Daleks, and it's called The Slither of Shoreditch. And it's kind of like the universal Dalek story. It takes place in the middle of Remembrance. Instead of Ace, who is not on the story, the companion for the story is the CIA Time Lord from Genesis of the Daleks. And the monster is the Slither, S-L-Y-T-H-E-R, which was featured in the Dalek Invasion of Earth. So this is a very, very continuity-heavy Seventh Doctor story. So after the proto sorry, after the proto version of Unit defeats the Dalek at Potter's Yard, the Doctor learns that a Slither is there, and the Doctor finds the Slither has been bioengineered by the Davros faction of the Daleks, and the Slither is trying to track down the Hand of Omega by stint. So the Doctor and the CIA Time Lord from Genesis are driving around London at night, and they go to the home of the Undertaker, who was featured very briefly in Remembrance, and they try and lure the Slither away from his house to a place where they can destroy it. And it ends with the Doctor deciding that he needs a cup of tea after this adventure. And that leads in directly into the scene in Part 2 of Remembrance, where the Doctor and the butler from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air had a long conversation <laughs> about tea and sugar and the consequences of decisions. Yeah, because the Doctor was out, we know he was out all night that night, don't we? Uh, but we only, we only see that short scene in the, in the coffee shop. So, uh, yeah, it's nice to see what he was up to the rest of the time. While Ace was at uh, Mike's mother's house watching uh, yeah. <laughs> Unearthly Child on television. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true, and it's it, it, it's in keeping with the seventh doctor that he, that he wouldn't even mention this was going on because he's he's sort of playing his own game. Uh, but interesting right. that the the other time lord doesn't seem to know about the hand of Omega, does he? He knows that the doctor's up to something, right? And the doctor's like, I won't tell you my secret if you don't tell me yours. But the seventh doctor is warned that the time war is coming. And this explicitly ties into a fan theory that Genesis of the Daleks was the very first act of the Time War. And the Time War says the Daleks now have time card technology, which we had previously seen in Resurrection, which you and I talked about on a podcast a few months ago. So Mike Tucker was kind of building up a unified Dalek history with the Dalek history as altered in Genesis of the Daleks. And it's interesting that the Time Lord here describes the Doctor's actions in Genesis as a failure, saying that he failed in his mission. But there was some really nice verbal byplay between the two of them. And of course, this Time Lord is wearing his robes, (laughs) and he ends up pulling a companion. He pulls a 1970s female companion and trips and sprains his ankle while running away. It was very funny. Yeah, it's a really good action-packed story, I thought. Um... It's uh, it's all about finding the slither, and then they have like sort of uh, the slithers on the on the roof of the they they take the Undertaker's hearse, and it's kind of like an action movie, uh, like something you get in sort of Men in Black or something like that, isn't it? With a monster on the roof while they they tear around London or Shoreditch. I have been a vocal critic of 
uh, Mike Tucker's fiction. I posted a scathing review of Loving the Alien on the ratings guide last year. I hated, hated, hated that book. But this was a really, really good short story. Not long enough to be annoying. Good continuity. And it fits the remit perfectly. It takes place in the middle of a Doctor Who story and ties together a little continuity ladder of a bunch of other stories. So I thought this was quite yeah, well done. It's the, it's the era he worked on, not as a writer, but as a, the special effects guy, wasn't it? So it's That's um, right. he's, he's got a good feeling, I guess, for the uh, you know, for the characters, you know, kind of uh, by being around them, and uh, probably the kind of uh, effect that he would like to have been able to achieve was a, a slither on the roof of a hearse, uh, kind of attacking them while they while they drive it around. I drove it around. Yeah. Oh God! I give it- Given how cheap the budget was and given how bad Remembrance looks today, that would have been yeah. a disaster. <laughs> they had actually tried to do that in 1988. Yeah. That is not a story that has aged well visually at all. Definitely. Uh, still still one of my favorites, though. Uh, so there, speaking of the Time War, um, we, this takes us into the, the Eighth Doctor story, We Can't Stop What's Coming by Steve Cole. So we see... Uh, but not the eighth Doctor that you were expecting. No. This is from the... Not from not from Big Finish uh, and not from Night of the Doctor or the TV movie. Uh, so it doesn't link into... Well, not that Night of the Doctor has been novelised, but obviously the TV movie was by Gary Russell. Uh, Actually, no. The Night of the Doctor was novelised. It was the first oh, chapter in the Day of the Doctor. Yeah, sorry. It totally was. Yeah, wasn't it? So it was from the Target books from... From last year, but this takes place in the BBC book's Eighth Doctor Adventures continuity. Which had its own separate time war, which was written in the year 2000, before Russell T. Davies incorporated that into a slightly different time war. For, uh, for yeah, I, I, I read all those at the time and I, I vaguely remember. I can't remember who they were fighting, though. Was it Faction Paradox or... Uh... My recollection from hanging around Rick Art's Doctor Who at the time is that they wanted the Daleks to be the bad guys, but they didn't have, they couldn't get the rights to the Daleks for the books. So the Ogrons are still there, but they've been changed into baboons, so they're not called the Ogrons. And there was sort of a secondary villain called Sabbath, who kind of takes the Doctor's second part and momentarily becomes a Time Lord. And then there was the Council of Eight, which are eight characters numbered one through eight each one having the personality traits of their corresponding doctor so two and three are always fighting and at the end of the justin richards novel which wraps up the arc uh it sort of ends with this evil one from the council of eight becoming the first doctor in unearthly child it was a very convoluted arc that went through book after book year after year and there was a whole parallel universe uh, segment. But before all that, there was the destruction of Gallifrey in a book called The Ancestors. Yes, Cell, I remember that. Which was, which was written by, co-written by Steve Cole and Peter Angelides. But in the Ancestor, after the Ancestor Cell, Gallifrey is destroyed. So that's the time war with fact and paradox. And that leads to a whole alternate universe story arc with Sabbath and the Ogron slash baboons of the Council of Eight, which Steve Cole was still the editor of the line. So this one takes place at the end of the Eighth Doctor reign, 
and it's got his last two companions, Fitz and Trix. And what I couldn't tell is if it took place before the Gallifrey Chronicles, which was the very last Eighth Doctor book, or after the Gallifrey Chronicles. Right, yeah, I, I remember Fitz, but I have no recollection of Trix at all. She was from the last year when nobody was reading the books anymore. So Justin Richards told this very very funny story on one of the DVDs. I forget which DVD. But at the end of the Eighth Doctor book run, nobody was reading the books anymore. And the sales had gone down, and they were cut down every other month instead of every month. And suddenly, BBC Books got this mass order from an Eastern European orphanage. And Justin Richards on the DVD says, I was heartwarmed thinking that my books were going to be used to teach Eastern European orphans how to read English. But it turns (laughs) out they were using the books as kindling for their furnace. So nobody was reading the books by 2005, and nobody remembers tricks. Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah, but so that was the cheap, the cheapest kindling they could find. I thought that was a very funny. I, I got to remember what DVD that was on so I can watch that again. Yeah, it was a very funny story by Justin Richards. <laughs> yeah, and now they're probably going for a fortune on eBay, aren't they? <laughs> That's right. Uh, so this story is the Eighth Doctor and Fitz have landed on a planetoid or an asteroid, which appears to have a chunk of Neanderthal era Earth, and it's alternating between Fitz's POV and the POV of a humanoid accountant who has been sent to this asteroid to test weapons. And there's four Neanderthals, and there's four accountants with weapons. And the accountants have been told to kill the four Neanderthals. The problem is, and this is where the story gets very, very Lawrence Miles. And for the uninitiated, Lawrence Miles was the key creative brain behind the original Time War, and in one of the first Eighth Doctor books, Alien Bodies, he has the Doctor in the future has been killed, and Gallifrey has fallen, and the coffin bearing the Doctor's final body is being sold as a weapon at a time auction, and all these different factions, including the CIA and the Protons, of all things, are bidding for this, uh, for this weapon. And that led to a whole line of books written by Lawrence Miles, uh, including The Ancestor Cell, which was basically a Lawrence Miles book, not written by Lawrence Miles. So what happens is in this story, we learn that the Neanderthals are the ancestors of each of the four humanoid accountants who are testing the weapons. And every time a Neanderthal is killed, the accountant becomes a temporal paradox, who is then harvested and turned into a temporal weapon. And the Eighth Doctor learns that the Time War is coming. And perhaps this is the Time War that we ended up getting on the TV series rather than the one from the books. But it was a very, very dark, downbeat, depressing ending. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, It's kind of a neat idea, that, wasn't it? That Because um, I think it's sort of a team-building exercise. That it's going to be sort of like uh, paintballing or something like that. Um, and that these these uh, these Neanderthals aren't real; that they're sort of androids or simulations in some way. But they end um, up committing the ultimate grandfather paradox, where they kill their own great 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 grandparents, who are still Neanderthals. You know, we all have Neanderthal DNA inside of us. I am like three percent Neanderthal according to my DNA results. So if I were to go back in time and shoot a Neanderthal, I would wipe myself out of existence. 
which goes back to the Lawrence Miles idea of faction paradox. The head of faction paradox was a man called Grandfather Paradox, who was an alternate version of the Doctor. And this story creates the Grandfather Paradox, and these four poor slubs are turned into, I guess, agents of faction paradox or temporal weapons or what have you. Yeah, and I think they, they, they go to the place that, that's behind this um, and, and find that I think everyone's already been killed or something like that, don't they? So it's... Um, right. You're not sure whether, if it is the Time War, it was the Time Lords or the Daleks that have done this. It could, it could be either the way that the, the, time war, the, the Time War plays out. Because Lawrence Miles had written a two-part book for the Eighth Doctor line called Interference. And it, yes, it was, it was I remember a, that one, yeah. It was an Eighth Doctor book with Faction Paradox, and it was also a Third Doctor book where the Third Doctor is killed on a planet called Dust and regenerates into Tom Baker. And yeah. Faction Paradox rewriting the timeline, which in retrospect is a brilliant idea, where they change the Third Doctor's timeline, and that has a ripple effect and then turns the Eighth Doctor into an agent of Faction Paradox. Yeah. So I don't know if this was a Faction Paradox short story per se, but it was definitely dripping in Lawrence Miles' ideas. Mm. I remember that being really controversial at the time, that, about rewriting the Third Doctor's uh, regeneration, because... The, at the time, uh, the Eighth Doctor novels were the only ongoing adventures, so it was seen as, you know, little chance of the TV series coming back, and this was canonically, they've changed the way that the Third Doctor <laughs> regenerated. But it makes perfect sense, because if the TV series is off the air, and all you have are books being sold to 900 fans, it makes sense that the only thing that you can do to show the enormity of the situation is to have the Doctor's own personal timeline changed. And then, of course, Steve Cole sets it back, and he restores the proper history and the ancestor cell. So the third Doctor is again killed by the radiation from uh, Metabulus 3. So it was only a short-term uh, paradox. But this story, I thought it wasn't long enough to build up on the ideas properly, and I thought I was a little dissatisfied at the end. But I can see what he was trying to do. And at the same time, you've got the reference to Harry Houdini, and you have the reference to the Zygma Beam from Towns of Wang Chiang. There's some moments of, of humor in there, at least, to offset all the darkness. Absolutely. Uh, I suppose uh, if this is a, a loose Time War trilogy within this book, uh, the, the final part of which is the War Doctor story, um, which is George Mann writing Decoy. Um, George Mann, I guess, being the obvious... Uh, choice for this because he wrote the the only War Doctor novel, Engines of War. Probably came out about 2014, I think. Which you covered back when Trap One was a blog rather than a podcast. Yeah, I I wasn't that impressed with the book at the time. Um, I've never revisited it, but it was very continuity heavy. It tied in uh, a lot of stuff from the the Five Doctors, which I think George Mann must be a huge Five Doctors fan because. Uh, I know some of his other stuff he's written since as well, like the, the comic book stuff that he writes, uh, I think, with Cavan Scott. Um, it brings in a lot of Five Doctors mythology as well. So it was all about, I think, going back to the 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 tower in the Death Zone where they resurrected um, Rassilon and things like that. Maybe um, he and Susan Day should do a uh, short story together. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it, he also made the Time War a very just... You know, kind of like maybe a Star Wars type space battle. Um, 
the TARDIS was basically just used as a missile just to smash through Dalek ships. Um, whereas I think what Russell T. Davis had, uh, had, had conjured with his writing was, you know, the idea of um, much more kind of esoteric fighting in the Time War. Um, I mean, it's not what we eventually saw in Day of the Doctor, but, uh, you know, the stuff about the Nightmare Child and the, the, the Could Have Been King. And I suppose you think about, uh, you know, even stuff from the classic series like Time Loops and things like that, which is how they defeat um, Axos. Uh, I suppose, yeah, I basically thought it would be fought on a on a level that would be, you know, wouldn't just be sort of uh, missiles and bombs and uh, lasers and things like that. Well, that's the trouble with regeneration. So you have this timeline called the showrunner who was responsible for Doctor Who. And the showrunner's first incarnation was Russell T. Davies. But when Davies regenerated into Stephen Moffat, the showrunner becomes a much more standard guns and missiles uh, weapon kind of guy. And now, of course, the showrunner is played by Chris Chibnall, who doesn't know what he's doing. So <laughs> I long for the days of the Russell T. Davies showrunner. Sorry. That, um, Moffat's my favorite so far, but um, I, I mean, I, I I like them all. Uh, but you also have Moffat as the guy who created the moment, which is a very esoteric weapon. Yeah, that that is more, I think, what um, what you think of as the uh, uh, as, as something from the Time War, the idea of a of a sentient weapon, um, which I suppose is never really talked about, but or I haven't seen it talked about, but has its um, has its origins in the Nemesis statue, doesn't it? It's a, it's a Time Lord weapon that's sentient in its own right. Um, so yeah, know, most can... of us don't talk about Silver Nemesis in the Doctor Who fan community. <laughs> it's kind of the redheaded stepchild. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm gonna uh, guest on another podcast in in the new year where I'm going to going into bat to defend Silver Nemesis. So I'll uh, I'll, I'll save my uh, my pro Nemesis arguments for that. I look forward to hearing them. But, I look forward uh, to hearing them. <laughs> it's a great story, needless to say. Uh, so yeah, this is uh, this is this is the War Doctor. He's he's standing with Rassilon, who's created a an Auton clone of the War Doctor to take a fleet into battle. Um, but basically, it's, it's a fairly hopeless battle, isn't it? That um, they, they didn't want to risk the Doctor for, but they wanted him there as a sort of talisman that would in, inspire the troops. Um, but in the way that the the Doctor does, although he doesn't want to be called the Doctor during this time. He has uh, he's tricked everyone. He's made his own deal with the Nestine consciousness and created two clones. One of whom is talking to Rassilon. One of whom is with the Time Lords. While the real Doctor is uh, uh, is saving the day, manages to defeat the Dalek fleet without any loss of Time Lord life. Using bombs that were stolen from the Panopticon vault. Yeah. And there's a brief reference to the sliders that we saw in uh, the corresponding. Stephen Moffat's season finale, Hellbent. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it very much takes place in the Moffat verse rather than the Davies verse. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it, it sets up the, um, I suppose the thing for the rest of the Davies is, is the, it's the, uh, the Timothy Dalton wrestle on um, and how he can't really be trusted. Um, how, you know, he'll go to, uh, the lengths that he'll go to to win the war. Um, it, it basically turned the Time Lords as bad as the Daleks. So this is before he regenerates into the Donald Sumter wrestle on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, the Timothy Dalton one's great, I think, but it's basically the best thing about, um, the end of time. 
Yes. Uh, End of Time is not a story that has aged very well in the fandom community. It's like the silver nemesis of the new series, if you will. Oh, that's... Uh, <laughs> low blow, low blow. Silver nemesis is way better than the End of Time. Uh, <laughs> so then we have um, Grounded by Una McCormack. I loved, loved, loved this story, and I'll tell you why. So Una McCormack has written several novels for the new series Adventures line. And this is in the Ninth Doctor spot, but the Ninth Doctor is not in it. Mm-hmm. It is from the point of view of Clive, who was a pivotal character in the very first new series story, Rose. But it's not told from Clive's point of view. It's told from the point of view of Clive's son. And it's written almost as a nine-year-old boy telling the story. And it's written in an appropriate prose style. So Ben has done something naughty. And he's been grounded by his mother. Ma'am, as they say in the book. Mum, as you would say. And mom, as we say here in the States. And Clive is his dad. And Clive is out back in the shed doing research on the uh, doctor's lives. Mm-hmm. And then a crazy neighbor shows up at the house and invites the two of them on an errand. And even though Ben, the boy, is grounded, he comes along with Clive. And they end up meeting... Now, the illustration... I originally thought it was meant to be a Slovene. Me too. Yeah. I, I think I, but what, what it is, yesterday they released a commercial here in the States. I don't know if they have it over where you are, but it's basically a four-minute sequel to the movie E.T., where Hen- Henry Thomas, the actor who played Elliot in E.T., is now a grown-up with a family, and E.T. shows up at his house, and they take him in, and it's a very mawkish commercial. And then at the end, E.T. goes home again. I think that this story is meant to be E.T. fanfic. I think that creature in the illustration is E.T. Because, again, it's, a, it's an alien botanist who has gotten separated from his family. Mm-hmm. And the family is looking for him. And eventually, at the end, he goes home. Yeah, the, the head shape is, is quite a lot like E.T. Um, but at, at first glance, it looks very much like a Saladin. It's the eyes, isn't it? It's the big black eyes that... Uh, that they make you think it's a Slovene. But it doesn't have the Slovene's long characteristic names. It only has a one-syllable yeah. name. And there's no other reference to the unique characteristics of Slovene biology. No, that's it, because I, I got quite far into the story thinking it was a, a Slovene, and then when they, uh, when they sort of corner it, uh, you're thinking about the um, all the ways that, that a Slovene can kill somebody that... Uh, that they talk about in Boomtown, there's, um, isn't it? Got sort of like poison darts and uh, all these different things that the doctors neutralized uh, so that they can have dinner together. Um, and you think, but this is really... a benevolent. This is a friendly alien. That's why I think the ET comparison is more. Yeah, apt. absolutely. Especially as it's told from the point of view of the boy rather than Clive or the doctor. Mm. Now, I thought for a moment that Mister Palmer, the neighbor, might be the doctor in disguise because he does seem to have access to alien technology. But looking at the illustration, that is not the ninth doctor. No, um, he looks a little bit like Nick Briggs, maybe. Huh. Uh, maybe not that much, no. Um, yeah, I didn't get who he was supposed to be. He has alien technology because he, he's able to uh, wipe their memories of the events of the story, but then reappears at but the then, end after Clive's been killed during the events of Rose right. to, to restore the memories um, to his son. Uh and he gives Ben his memory back, and Ben becomes a science fiction writer. 
and ends up being very successful, which is a very nice way of wrapping up the Clive storyline, mm. which was kind of left dangling on TV at the end of Rose. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. It was a shame when he got killed because he was uh, he was a nice little character. But yeah, because he's uh, he's he's from the north. Uh, he's he's uh, Geordie, so he says "mam," and where I live, most people say "mam" as well. But I. I kind of grew up further further down the country, so I, I still say mum. But yeah, that's everybody else says mum, but but with Clive being a Geordie, he says mum, which is uh, which is We're, nicely authentic yeah. for for his character. My kid from Brooklyn says mom, mommy, yeah. mom, mommy, <laughs> with our characteristic yeah. accent. Yeah, this was this was probably one of my two or three favorites. Yeah, of the whole me book. too. Yeah, um, I think uh, I. My dad died when I was quite young, when I was nine, and uh, stuff like this always uh, sort of gets to me a little bit. So uh, the the ending was oh, wow. was yeah really touching. Um, oh man, sorry to hear that, man. Um, but yeah, this this is that was a really really nice story. So it's another one we where we don't get the doctor in it, but I think Clive's such a good character that he uh, he deserves to be uh, revisited like this. Um, because on, on TV as well, maybe he didn't look like such a great father. Uh, if he spent all his time in his shed and uh, kind of talking to to other strangers about the Doctor, it's uh, it, it shows that uh, you know he was kind of a really good father and husband as well. Which I think came out in Russell T Davis's Rose novelization. Right, but this is uh, Clive's one chance to be the main character in a story, mm-hmm. and I think McCormack really did very well by him. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Um, but yeah, the, as to the who Mr. Palmer was, um, it's a total mystery, isn't it? Maybe one of our listeners will have an idea. Yeah, if um, if it does relate to something else that I that I can't think of, maybe another. I don't think it relates to any of um, Una McCormack's other books or anything. But and my original thought is that he may have been one of the characters from Linda. But looking at the Wikipedia summary for Love and Monsters, there was no Mr. Palmer in that. Uh, so another Doctorless story is The Turning of the Tide by Jenny T. Colgan. The longest story in the collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's written to the Tenth Doctor. Uh, she had the book In the Blood. Uh, was that last year? Maybe the year before? And she also did, I forget the name now, it was the uh, Vikings the Vikings in Scotland story with the 11th Doctor and Amy. Yeah, is it? I forget the name of it now. Dark Horizon, was it? Dark Horizon? Possibly. So, yeah, I think something like that, yeah. So she's uh, kind of a very well-known novelist in her own right um, as, as Jenny Colgan. And I think she writes the Doctor Who stuff as Jenny T. Colgan. Right, I've, I've seen the Jenny Colgan books on sale here in the States mm. very prominently in Barnes & Noble. She's possibly the most successful writer in this collection. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I know my mum reads um, like quite a bit of her stuff. Uh, so this this is following on from the events of... Uh, oh, what's it called? The Stolen Earth and... Journey's, Journey's End. Journey's End, uh, where the, the Metacrisis Doctor has been created... <laughs> Um, and uh, is is given to Rose as a as a going away present to um, to go and live in the other universe. But he's also the Doctor Donna. Yeah, um, which I, I I don't think I I got that from the episode that the um, that he was still made up of Doctor's person uh, Donna's personality as well as the Doctor's. But at least in this short story, he is the Doctor Donna. Yeah, 
And Rose says, he's not really a him. I just call him that for convenience. And he does access Donna's personality at one point at the end of the story. Yeah. Um, well, I think, yeah, it's difficult to tell. Because I think the thing about when uh, when they go to the alien ship and uh, the character. So he's uh, decided to call himself Corin because Rose doesn't want to call him Doctor. Now, I have to ask you, being an American, I don't know. Is Corin a real name over there or is that just something that she made I up? I think it's made up. It's It's not one I've ever heard before. Okay. Um, so, so when Corin and Rose arrive at the ship, and the doctor says something like, "Should I have brought muffins? Everybody likes muffins." I thought that could be—I could hear Donna saying that, but I could also hear the tenth doctor saying that. Um, you know, just kind of, kind of bringing a bit of kind of whimsy into a, a dangerous situation. So, uh, I, I didn't know if that was a little, uh, a little sort of tell that Donna's side of the personality was coming out as well. Uh, and Rose is, is pregnant, heavily <laughs> pregnant in this story. That's right. And Corin has become a GP, which means that he's become a doctor. Yeah. Um, but they're very uncomfortable about calling him doctor, aren't they? And he doesn't have the doctor's memories or skills or technology. Yeah, he's... So this is Corin defeating the alien menace with his own bare hands. Yeah, speak. he's got some memories, but he finds them difficult to access, doesn't he? He doesn't have the, the, the full range of the doctor's experience to hand. So kind of uh, stuff, stuff comes to him much more slowly. Um, one of the things I picked up on here is uh, Rose talks about the smell of the doctor. It's the familiar mix of graphite, lime and diesel which is from Jenny T. Colgan's novelization of Rose. Ah, okay. I'd forgotten about that part. Uh, yes. She, she, when so, he's, sorry, it was Jenny Colgan's novelization of The Christmas sorry, Invasion. Sorry, The Christmas Invasion. That's right. Yeah, not Rose. That was uh, obviously Russell T. Davis. Yes, it was the um, because she says that the Tenth Doctor still smells like the Ninth Doctor, which was the, uh, the graphite, lime, and diesel uh, combination. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, that was... Uh, that was a nice little um, callback to her own work there. Yes. Uh, so this this is obviously is in the parallel universe, and they sort of um, they talk about a few differences that they have, uh, like some place names are different and uh, and whatnot. Um, there's no reference to the to the Cybermen because that was kind of the idea, wasn't it, that they were going to clear clean up after the um, after the Cybermen had largely taken over that world. So that's right. And there's a reference to Rosa's mom and Pete Tyler, but there's no Mickey and there's no Martha. Yeah. Uh, so, well, um, Mickey came back, didn't he, and settled in the the normal universe, I think, with Martha. Did they... This is where my memories get a little hazy. Yeah, I, guess. I think, I think Martha... I think, um, yeah, Mickey elected to stay once they came back yeah because he stayed in the parallel universe in the cyberman two part of the age of steel one and i think when they came back right. through for doomsday uh the, you know the sort of torchwood one i think he, he stayed here then um and then at some point later on he he got with martha who was uh, who was still in this universe as well uh, so it's just it's just uh, rose and jackie who, who who crossed over and stayed there uh and Jackie uh, with Pete because uh, uh, he was rich, wasn't it? There was the whole thing about like uh, she was like, "I don't care." Well, how rich in that year? <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> uh, so this this is a, an alien plan basically to uh, to steal all of the Earth's water 
and then uh, sell it on to another planet that wants it. That's right. Uh, so there's some interesting stuff because they say, well, why don't you just take half the water? And the, the aliens say, well, this is kinder because if there's only half the water, then there'll be all kinds of terrible wars over the remaining resources and, you know, you'll basically just have a nuclear war. Um, so it's better if we just take it all and then you all die in a couple of days sort of thing, which... Uh, very downbeat, very yeah. downbeat. Um, and there's this ongoing thread of they, they, they're not talking about the baby because they're not sure with it, I guess, being a hybrid. Um, not sure what exactly the baby will be. Um, and it seems to be even be a veiled reference to the doctor's children who are child, I guess, who was Susan's mom or dad. Because say right. something about, like, you talk something about... Um, you're not the same yeah. man. Yeah, but obviously we don't. We will. We will never know what who they were or what happened to them. But obviously suggests that uh, but, it wasn't good anyway. But the story ends with Rose saying, "Are you ready for the greatest adventure mm -hmm. of all?" So as she's about to give birth, so that was very yeah. nice. Yeah. So it was. Uh, yeah, ends with uh, the the world being saved. And uh, yeah. About to uh, about to give birth. So you can see why this was put in the Target storybook because it sort of fills mm -hmm. in a gap. It tells you the story of Rose after she's in the new universe and the story of this humanoid doctor after he goes off. Um, well, the doctor is doing mm -hmm. his own thing. So it was it was it was, it was nice to uh, look in yeah, on that. Yeah, I know there's been a big Finnish box set called Rose Tyler. I think the Dimension Canons, which I haven't listened to yet, um, which I think is the same sort of idea of, um, of following her adventures. Uh, after that. Well, there's so uh, much big finish yeah. to catch up on. I, I don't think I even knew about yeah, that one. Yeah, I've, I've got to listen to, and uh, it's it's on my list. So um, I'm not sure whether those two things will uh, will tie in together or not. So speaking of tying in together, the 13th story in the collection was sort of a 11th slash 12th slash 13 Doctor story by Jack Rayner. She's been around the Doctor Who book scene forever. I think she worked in the Virgin offices in the early 90s, and then she was a name check in um, a lot of the early books, and she was dating one of the writers. Then she became a writer herself, and is still a Doctor Who author to this day, which is where a citation needed comes in. So this is told from the point of view of the, correct me if I get this wrong, Encyclopedia Gallifreya, which is a bottle, a bottle-shaped book, which sort of updates the doctor's memories in real time and is sort of following along his adventures, but he's not aware of it. So it bridges the 11th doctor to the 12th doctor, to the 13th Doctor. So in lieu of a Matt Smith story, and in lieu of a writer trying to capture Matt Smith's manic speech patterns, here you get the 13th, the 11th Doctor as filtered through this encyclopedia. And the illustration is Matt Smith holding up the bottle inside his TARDIS, but it's the only bit of Matt Smith that you actually get in the book. And this is very, very wickedly satirical, similar to Punting by Susie Day, and that you have lots and lots and lots of references to other Doctor Who stories. 
there's quotes from the chase. There's a reference to sleep is for tortoises from the towns of Wang Chiang. There's a quote from the Time Warrior. There's the reappearance of our old friend Harry Sullivan as an imbecile. And I think Marky told me there was a reference to the Third Doctor's song. There I is. The um, the, uh, so this is the, uh, they say the, the Encyclopedia Gallifreya has become sentient after the events of the Time War. Um, so I think it, it's established in like uh, the Deadly Assassin, isn't it, that the, uh, the Matrix is updated with the experience and knowledge of all the Time Lords when they die. Um, but in the time war, they were sort of just dying all the time and, and different stuff was happening. So they, they start to update in real time. And, and this is the receptacle for the doctor. Uh, and, uh, so, so each time the, the, uh, this, this now sentient book, uh, talks about something, uh, you, it sort of links to, um, different files. Um, when it says doctor, renegade time Lord, um, uh, and then is it like 19... 19- Point nine billion citations, and it says audio index audio index file available. I crossed the void beyond the mind, uh, which I think is the opening line, isn't it? To I am the Doctor by John Pertwee. <laughs> I crossed the void beyond the mind, the empty waste that circles time. Yes. <laughs> so later on in the short story, the word frozen shows up because now the eleventh Doctor has become the twelfth Doctor. Mm-hmm. And mentions that Gallifrey is frozen in a pocket universe. And then the encyclopedia tries to cross-reference Frozen. Cartoon film seen by the Doctor 387 times. Audio index file no longer available. And then Jack Rayner writes the chorus to Let It Go. (laughs) But instead of being from the movie Frozen, it tells the story of the Censorites. Now, Mark, I've got a special treat for you. You might not know this, but I went to high school with Adina Menzel, who recorded the song for the Frozen soundtrack. Cool. She was two two years ahead of me, and I actually used to do math homework with her younger sister. So I reached out, using my old school connection, to Adina Menzel, and I tried to get her to record the song using the sensorites, sorry, using the Keys of Marinus lyrics. Yeah. And she's like, I don't know who you are. So I didn't get it done. And then I thought I would sing it for you, but then I realized that would be a terrible, terrible idea. But it's not the sensor it's the keys of Marinus. And it yep. closes with the line, the board never bothered me yeah. anyway. <laughs> Following which, the encyclopedia deletes the audio yeah. file and says, I think I'll move on. So I think Jack Rayner may have been on her fourth or fifth cup of coffee when she wrote yeah. that. It's um, yeah, it's it's a really witty story because, uh, like you say, it's like the the Five Doctors one where you're seeing these little vignettes, um, but almost um, I don't know, is it like a Greek chorus or something like that, like kind of commenting on the action, but uh, yeah, in quite um, quite a glib way in a lot of cases. Um, and there's a wickedly funny bit where the audio uh, on the encyclopedia hears Doctor Who, Doctor Who over 800 years. Yes. <laughs> Which is a reference to Time of the Doctor. Yeah. I think Stephen Moffat knew one joke, Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And he made that one joke the backbone of the Matt Smith era. 
Um, and then the, uh, there's, uh, there's also the time when uh, the doctor is in the, the confession dial, which goes on for four and a half billion years. <laughs> that, yes. the, um, that it's just the same thing is being recorded over and over again. Um, but yeah, I sort of thought this story, it's almost like a metaphor for fandom. Uh, that you've got this, uh, you've got this system which is following the doctor, recording it, cross-referencing things. Um, there's because there's a line about how this uh, this book knows that the master is regenerated into Missy, and they say, well, if only the doctor would consult me, then you know I could help him out right. and things like that. And obviously, there's a vocal part of fandom that think that they could run the show better, and uh, if Stephen Moffat or Chris Chibnall listened to them, <laughs> uh, that you know that the, the things would maybe be better. There's a very self-reviewing line um, where the encyclopedia writes, "Downloading the same phrase over and over and over again is not thrilling. It is not stimulating. I wonder if I can go back to sleep." So that's fandom reacting to the Stephen Moffat era. That's what I, I thought maybe she was going for there was. Uh... The, the idea that yeah that, uh, that that you've got fandom there, completely obsessed with the Doctor, following everything, commenting everything, picking up references and uh, and in jokes, um, but completely unable to actually interact, or um, you know kind of influence events at all. And with you and I spending two <laughs> hours talking about this book, yeah, I guess absolutely that's exactly who we are. <laughs> And then it ends, there's a very downbeat ending where um, the 12th Doctor becomes the 13th Doctor, and the encyclopedia is trying to get the Doctor's attention, and comes upon the idea of self-sacrifice to save the Doctor, and ends up getting, I think, pulled off the shelf by Graham, the 13th Doctor companion, and getting, and getting consumed and being killed. So that was a, that was a sort of out-of-left-field conclusion. Yeah, because um, it, it ties into uh, the Battle of Ranskor of Kolos, uh, and uh, Tim Shaw and the Ux have discovered the Encyclopedia Gallifreya um, and are trying to break their way into it. So, uh, so the book chooses to uh, use the chameleon technology to turn into a bottle of Tizer uh, to attract Graham <laughs> to uh, to drink it at the picnic, and uh, and then that's the end of it. Right, I have. We just talked about the battle of uh, Ransk or of Kolos at the Elihu 13th Doctor panel, and John Peel was the only one of us who liked it. I mean, the title's unpronounceable. I didn't really care about Tim Shaw. Yeah, there's no battle. There's no battle, right? So, while it makes sense for the Target Storybook Remit to have this tie into the Battle of Rumpelstiltskin or, or whatever it's called, I didn't care about the underlying story enough to care about the end of this. And I, I think I would have taken the short story in a different direction had I been the editor. But I guess it had to end somehow, so tying it into the Battle of Rumpelstiltskin is the way to go. Yeah. Um, and I guess you don't know when, when these stories were written. It, it was possibly the, the most recent story at the time, or maybe it fits right. better with that than resolution um, in, in terms of what the threat would be that... Uh, that would destroy the book. Yeah. And Jack Jack Rayner is very very funny. Her first 
full-length novel was called Earthworld, and it's, it was after the Eighth Doctor got his TARDIS back. He had spent a hundred years trapped on Earth after Gallifrey was destroyed. And she wrote a very satiric novel, which is kind of sort of set in the Jurassic Park universe. But there's some moments of raw emotion in there that were stunning. So she has this nice ability to mix comedy and raw emotion. So this short story does both of that, because it's obviously very funny. And then, of course, it ends on a tragic note. Mm. Yeah, um... I remember Earthworld, uh, and it got a re-release, I think, for the 50th anniversary, didn't it, when they did the, uh, you know, book for each Doctor for the 50th anniversary, so I revisited it then, it was, uh, I remember enjoying it a lot. With a fancy cover, yes. Mm. Then we get the 12th Doctor story by Beverly Sanford, who I think, uh, this is her first Doctor Who work, I know she's written um, uh, quite a bit of young adult stuff, uh, when I looked her up, this is this is Pain Management. Uh, with the twelfth Doctor, Bill, Missy, and, and uh, Nardole, yeah. Uh, my favorite, my favorite new series companion is Nardole, so I was happy to see more. Yeah, of him. I, I like that whole setup. I, I, series ten, I absolutely loved. So it was great to see all these characters back together again. Uh, so let's get this out of the way. This is a good story. It's very funny. Missy breaks free of the Doctor. The Doctor. So the Doctor becomes a rock guitarist in. 1994 San Francisco. He knows the roadies. He knows the musicians. He's invited on stage. He gives a performance on his guitar. He then tries to jump off the stage into the crowd and knocks himself unconscious and is taken to the hospital. And Missy discovers that they're there at the same time as a flu outbreak. Missy, at this point, was a prisoner in the TARDIS, and she's trying to be cured. She's trying to be cured of her evil, and she decides she's going to help the doctor out by curing the flu. And, of course, things go horribly, dreadfully wrong, and she ends up creating this sentient monster that tries to take over the hospital and then the world, all while the doctor is asleep. But Missy is active doing good backfires, and somebody is killed. I don't want to talk about any of that. What I want to talk about is that for a story that is set in San Francisco, this is no version of the United States <laughs> at all that I am familiar with. I... Not to get into my day job, but I spent a lot of time uh, with medical records and doctors and nurses and disability. I know a little bit about hospitals. None of the words or the vocabulary or the vernacular used in this story has anything to do with American medicine. Okay. If you were to use this language in a real hospital in San Fran, they're like, what are you talking <laughs> about, man? So that's what I want to talk about. This is not this is not any America that I'm aware of. So do you, do you say matrons over there? Okay. No. <laughs> I, di I didn't pick up on that at all. That is a very British medical word, and that's mm. fine. Bless you guys. However, no, not not in San Francisco. There's a nice reference to the TV movie as well, isn't there? Where uh, I think Missy says, "Oh, at least they didn't take him to the uh, I can't remember the name of the hospital now." Um. But, uh, yeah, Warner General. Yeah, this I think. is something about yeah that have um, that have got him for stealing those clothes. But this is 1994. It's five years before the events of the TV movie. Right. So uh, yeah, nobody in in San Francisco would uh, would know about that yet. But this story was just a black mm. comedy, and it's basically Missy's story more than anybody else's. Yeah. Bill and Nardole get a lot to do, and the thirteenth, the twelfth Doctor is unconscious for most of it. So it's basically, it's that 
subplot in the middle of the final Peter Capaldi season where he's trying to cure Missy. And, of course, we know what happens to her at the end of uh, World Enough and Time. Yeah, so she starts off trying to do something good here, but um, uh, it backfires. She creates a monster, um, and then she's not... It's a little bit ambiguous as to whether she really wants to defeat the monster, and then the way she defeats the monster isn't what the Doctor would have uh, would have tried to do as well. So it's uh, it's sort of a case of... She's not ready yet, isn't it? And uh, Sybil's feeds into the mistrust that the characters would still feel towards her um, in that series. And she redeems herself later in the series, and then her story arc concludes. So this was, I mean, I'm not saying it was a bad story, but it was bonkers, absolutely bonkers. But again, you need if in a short story collection, you need to have the bonkers story. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is it's it. good. It's like, like the um, the old uh, annuals, isn't it? That um, you need some really bonkers stories in there. Yes, yeah. but no, it was one of, one of my favorites. I enjoyed it. The um, the the character voices were very authentic. Yeah, very authentic. She got Nardole perfectly. She got Bill perfectly. Yeah. She got Missy perfectly. And for the few pages where Capaldi's Doctor is there, yeah. she got him perfectly too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely one of the highlights for me. Of that um, hopefully we'll get some some more stories from Beverly Sanford in the uh, in the Doctor Who canon. Yes, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about them right here. Uh, and then finally, like you said, we uh, we were bookended with the Thirteenth Doctor uh, and another story from a Thirteenth Doctor screenwriter, Vinay Patel. We have letters from the front. Um, which directly feeds into his um, his episode. I forgot what it's called. Demons of the, yeah. Demons of the Punjab. Directly feeds into his episode, Demons of the Punjab. Um, so you've got we're following uh, the characters, the human characters from that story, um, through through fighting in World War Two. Um, and he's uh, he's writing back to Umbreen, who I guess is fiance, uh, Prem's fiance at this point. Right. Um, um, Umbreen becomes Yaz's grandmother. And at the end of Demons of the Punjab, Prem is killed in part because of his younger brother, who was a nationalist. But the story, half of the story, is told from Prem's point of view in his letters to Umbreen and his brother. And the very last letter is directed to his brother, talking about his plans for the two of them. And of course, you know it's going to end in tragic heartbreak and death. This is a real gut punch of a story. Yeah, it's very elegiac, isn't it? Because the it's um, it, it's written in entirely in in the letters to Umbreen, which um, I think the implication is that Umbreen can't read. So. Um, the uh, the brothers Manish is going to have to read them out to the rest of the family, so he keeps apologising for putting romantic stuff in for Umbreen as well, doesn't he? Um, and then the other half of it is from one of the Thajarans, who is reporting back to the homeworld um, until the destruction of the homeworld. Um, and it's it's you know, from both sides. It's that loneliness and the being away from home. Uh, and basically, want wanting to get back home, isn't it? So it, uh, I, th- I thought it was a 
really, really well written story. When Prem's older brother was killed in World War II, according to the episode, he had seen a Thajarian there. So this story shows that from the Thajarian's point of view. But of course, at the end, yes. I'm just never going to pronounce this right. At the end, the alien has reformed and becomes a force for good, mm. as we saw in the episode. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, following the destruction of their home world, they uh, they they want to sort of uh, bear witness, don't they, in uh, remembrance of people? Right, which takes us to demons of the Punjab, where they are the aliens that are seen, and they're not demons after all, because we learn in that episode that the demons were really the humans all along. And there's only a tangential reference to Gallifrey in the short story, so the Doctor does not make a direct appearance. But it was remarkably good, remarkably good, very mature, very well written, very powerful short story, and really glad to end the collection on a high note. Definitely, yeah. The the sort of the accounts of World War Two and and uh, yeah, how he he writes about his family and the loss of his brother is uh, yeah, really really well. Probably done. the best piece in the whole book. Maybe not my favorite, but definitely the best piece in the whole book. And that is the Target Storybook, all 15 stories. That's it. Definitely worth getting. Uh, really eclectic collection. Some great stuff in there. Covers all the eras. I think maybe I'd rather have the the novelizations. But, I mean, I guess if they're going to do both, I'd, um, I'd definitely read more of these as well. Well, this is a place for Terence Dix, who is at the end of his life, to do a short story tying up the Second Doctor era. Mm -hmm. So this is the very last thing he wrote, and we're lucky to have it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, worth worth getting for that alone, definitely. Um, they've recently announced there's going to be an anthology of Terence Dix's target novelizations, haven't they? I think um, BBC Books are doing some polls on Twitter uh, so that uh, readers can decide which ones make it into the collection. And they actually announced the top ten a couple of days ago. Ah, right. So it's nine of his best books mm -hmm. and The Wheel of Space. Because The Wheel of Space was the one that nobody can find. Yeah. They, if you didn't buy it in the store in 1989, it's just not out there. They, they um, change hands quite a lot of money on Twitter, don't they, I think? Yeah, it goes at conventions for like 60 or 80 bucks American, which is quite a bit more than the average Target book goes for. Yeah, absolutely. Because that... The print run had diminished by that point. Mm. And I, I bought it at the time when I was 15 or 16 years old, but I was falling out of Doctor Who's fandom at the time, temporarily, mm -hmm. and I was only buying the books out of completeness' sake, so that's why I bought it. Right. And if I hadn't bought it when I did, I would have had a really hard time finding it for a reasonable price. So not everybody can own The Wheel in Space, and it's not his best book, but it's there because it's almost impossible to find otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased that's made it then because, uh, yeah, I never got hold of a copy of that. Now's your chance. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's along with the dying days and the season 12 Blu-ray is the, uh, the, uh, the missing parts of my collection. Well, the season 12 Blu-ray is getting a limited release, so you will be lucky. Yes. Yeah, I saw that. So, uh, yeah, that's good. I'm getting the wheel in space as well. So we just need the dying days to be released now. That's right. Well, thank you very much for joining me. This is our longest podcast recording yet, I think. We were here for a good two hours. Yeah, I think it is. I think it might be, uh, yeah, maybe the, the third longest podcast I've done. So, it's, uh, But yeah, a lot to cover in there. 
Good. And I guess the next one we'll talk about maybe Revelation of the Daleks. Absolutely. That's coming up very soon. I think it's already out of the UK. Yeah, I've ordered my copy. It hasn't arrived yet. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to reading that one. See whether the talking cat makes a reappearance. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've been rereading the Target novelizations in order for the past six months, starting with the Stones of Blood. And I'm in the middle of the Awakening now. So I'll be getting to Revelation of the Daleks in sequence in about a month's time. Oh, so perfect timing. I'll be reading the book when I get there. Great. Of course, I have to read Time Lash first, which <laughs> might suck my will to live. But if I'm still alive after Time Lash, I will read and review Revelation of the Daleks. Fantastic. And you can hear that right here on the Trap One podcast. So join me next time. I'll be talking about The Sinister Sponge and Other Stories, which is the latest audio collection of stories from the old World Distributors Annuals. And that will be with John Featonby and Pete Lambert. Uh, hopefully we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>